0: Shabbat shalom, everyone, and welcome to our program. This is the program called The Visions of Ezekiel, and we are well into the book now. And if you would, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. In this episode, I'm going to attempt to teach uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 for you. Now, Ezekiel is going to see another vision. It's kind of like the vision he had before, but it's a little bit different. And so we're going to get additional information on top of what we've already heard from Ezekiel and the Lord concerning Israel. These chapters lend themselves toward explaining the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. A lot of people don't know this, but when the Babylonians first attacked Israel, they just took some of the people hostage. Ezekiel was one of them. But they didn't destroy the whole place. But continually, the people of Israel refused to cooperate with the Babylonians, and they had set things up to where it was going to be okay for the people of Israel, but there was agitation amongst the Jews, and they further infuriated the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came and ultimately destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So Ezekiel is in that in-between time. You know, he's been taken captive, but Jerusalem isn't yet destroyed. And then he is going to be prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what's going to be coming from the Babylonians while he's there in Babylon. And he's going to get another vision that's going to be helping to explain that. But something interesting is going to happen in this vision. He's actually going to speak prophetically about something that's going to happen in our days. And what is happening here is what sometimes we call a double-barreled prophecy. There is a historical element to it, but there's yet still a future element to it as well. And this is going to be kind of exciting for us because we're going to get to a certain point where I know you're not going to have any difficulty understanding how this speaks to even our future. With that said, let's begin first with chapter 8, verse 1. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, in the hand of the Lord God fell on me. So he's in Babylon. And oh, by the way, he is talking about the fifth day of the month of Elul, which comes at the end of summer. The very next month is going to be Tishri with trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. The month of Elul those 30 days leading up to Yom Kippur are called days of repentance. So he is in an assembly with um, other Jews there, the elders that were in the land at that point. And obviously the reason why they were meeting, it probably had something to do with the days of repentance. and had something to do with the coming holidays that were coming. And so he's with them. And in the midst of that, and I believe what he was doing is he with the other elders, they were repenting. In the midst of that, God now takes a hold of him, and he's going to show him another vision. Listen to the way God does this with him. Verse 2, Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upwards the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. This is a very startling look, very brightly lit it. Verse 3, and he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head, grabbed him by his hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. There's a lot we got to unpack here for the moment. He's sitting in Babylon. He's in captivity. Grab God grabs him by the hair. Boy, that says something right off the bat. Grab somebody by the hair. Grabs him by the hair and he takes him to the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to show him something that's happening back in the land of Israel that's happening in Jerusalem and it's going to be involving the Temple Mount and the temple itself. But I want you to listen to how he describes that he goes into the Jerusalem and into this area to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court. Now the inner court is has been added by translators to make sense of it. And what they're trying to do is they think this is the north gate of entering the entire temple mount. It's not the temple, it's the temple mount, and this is the gate that would enter into essentially what used to be called the court of the Gentiles. So he's entering the temple complex in that gate and he says where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. Now, the translators have used the past tense here, was located. That's past tense. They're saying this is something that was in the past. The original text doesn't have that. The original text is written in the present tense. Let me read it to you that way where the seat of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, is. Now, In the history of Israel, nobody has ever set up an idol near the north gate in the temple complex. So why is God saying, why is Ezekiel saying, oh, I went to the place where the idol of jealousy is set? And oh, by the way, what is the idol of jealousy? Well, these questions, let's unpack them a little bit. You do know that God is a jealous God. Why is he jealous? because he does not want to share his glory with any other god, with any other idol. There's never been, with the exception of the Greeks, ever come in and do anything in the temple complex anywhere near this kind of thing. However, this is emphatically talking about that something that exists. But you've got to ask yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, is Ezekiel seeing something in the future? I mean, when we get back to chapter 40, and he's taken to go see the temple there, it's definitely the future. Is it possible that he's seeing something in the future, not in the past? Now, mind you, translators and most people who've commented on this book think all of this is in the past, that they don't see a future prophetic scenario of what this vision is about. I would like to submit to you that there's lots of evidence that this is a future prophecy. Let me go ahead and begin to explain that further. There is going to be an idol set up on the Temple Mount that probably will be near the North Gate at the start of the Great Tribulation. The very phrase, on the wing of abomination, means that there's going to be an idol set up on the wing of the Temple. Now, what is the wing of the Temple? That would be the North Gate. The temple faces toward the east, and so on the wing or on either side is north or south. And he's specifically calling for an idol to be set up that's going to be over there. An idol that will provoke God to jealousy because somebody is asserting themselves as God above God. That's what he's speaking to. And by the way, that's clearly, we know, is going to be a future thing. Daniel's prophecy, Yeshua's comment about the abomination of desolation, that idol is to be set up on the north, probably the north side of the altar, near the north gate. So you, as you would come in the temple complex, you would see it. And by the way, the north gate is the predominant gate that the Palestinians use when they come into the temple mount. The Jews use a completely different gate. So we go a little bit further with this. So he's having this vision, and I'm submitting to you right now, he's seeing something in the future about Jerusalem although it's also about the present-day Jerusalem in terms of abominations. And he gets to see a couple of levels of abomination as he enters the temple complex. Verse 4, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. Now, that's about as specific as you could possibly get. There's never been an idol at the north altar gate ever in the history of Israel. But I'm here to tell you the prophecy says that at the start of the Great Tribulation, there will be one. So I think Ezekiel may be talking about future things that involve the last generation. I would remind you, That like the Jews that were in Babylon, the Assyrians scattered in the nations, and Ezekiel is in exile from the land of... You and I are in exile. We're not in the promised land. And God has prophesied that the exiles from the nations will be returning. We have seen the partial return of Judah that came out of Babylon. We've seen an example of that. And he's foretold us through all the prophets, there's going to be a greater exodus, and all the exiles of the nations are going to be coming back. And so a lot of this message is to people who are in exile to explain what's going to be happening about this being exiled and about returning. Ezekiel continues to go on further. Verse 5, Then he said, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was the idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, that I should be far from my sanctuary? Yet you still will see greater abominations. Essentially what God is saying, he said, you see what's going to happen here? He said, I'm in there. They think I don't see this. I see, God says, what is happening. He's going to go further. Verse 7, then he brought me to the entrance of the court. That would be the court of Israel. The altar is inside of it. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He's not talking about the gate that would enter in properly. He's talking about there's a hole in the wall of that court said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. I got through the wall. Not the proper entrance to the court, an improper entrance to the court. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that are being committed here. I want you to see what's actually going on inside the court of Israel. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping thing and beasts and detestable things with all of the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. You imagine the entire court of Israel that surrounds the sanctuary, the altar, the laver, all of that on the walls is pictures of unclean things. And we know that the temple is to be a pure place, a holy place, and all of this unholiness is around there. Now, when you read this, you go, oh my gosh, this is horrible, absolutely horrible. Verse 11, and standing in the front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel. By the way, the number of elders of Israel is 70. That was established by Moses when they came out of Egypt, the 70 elders that ruled with him. And he names off a particular man that is there in Israel. Now, this is historical. Yaazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing in the house of Israel, standing among them, and each man with his censer in his hand. He's there with the 70 elders. They have their censers. And by the way, when they come to entreat the Lord, they have a censer, has some of the fragrance off, to cast a sweet fragrance before God when they go before God. And they bring their censers. They take fire off the fire altar. They put it in. They light the incense. They carry it around, and it casts off the fragrance, a sweet fragrance before the Lord. It's part of the worship. You know, normally in the temple, you put some of that on the golden altar inside the sanctuary. That's what's in there. But if you come before the Lord, the priests come before they wave the censer. And with the fragrance of a cloud of incense rising, verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us, and the Lord has forsaken the land." So there, there, the leaders that were in Israel didn't believe God was around anymore. Oh yeah, we have this story that we came out of Egypt. Yeah, we came here. Yeah, Jerusalem got built, King David, King Solomon. Oh yeah, but he's not around anymore. We don't see the evidence of him. We we think it was just a fascinating historical story that brought us up to here and it's just us. And they don't believe that God's paying attention to them or sees anything. I cannot think of a better way to describe the present world at the end of days. Most people don't see God at all. They don't think he's around here. He doesn't see what's going on. Whatever's happening there, they can get away with. God doesn't see it, and God doesn't care about it, and God's not going to take action against us, either for or against, because of that. I would mention to you that the prophet Zephaniah, in talking about the day of the Lord, that God specifically takes a lamp to search out and go get every person who says God will neither do good nor do bad. And that's an expression which means God has forgotten this place, we've forgotten God, God's not around, we don't have to deal with God anymore. He will neither do good nor do bad. And it says God specifically is going to go and judge those people directly for that. We have a version of that here that's being spoken by Ezekiel. Verse 13, And he said to me, you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. So we've gone through a couple of levels, and that's what this chapter is doing. I want to use the word ascending levels of abomination, but if it's really abomination, it's really they're descending into further abomination. And it's getting worse. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting weeping for Tammuz we got to understand a little bit about the Babylonian religion at this point. There's a Babylonian religion in which there's a story about a woman who's a mother who has a son named Tamaz, and Tamaz is killed, but Tamaz is then resurrected and becomes ruler. And it's a play, it's an imitation on the prophecies of the Messiah, that the Messiah will come to us, he'll be a son given to us, he will be killed, executed, but he'll rise from the grave and come to power. It's part of the Babylonian religion. Interestingly enough, in Judaism today, in the Hebrew calendar, we have a month of Tammuz that we still have present today in modern-day Judaism that is offered to the world as the Hebrew calendar. And he's talking about, obviously, what's going on here, God sees as an abomination. What are you weeping for that? Why are you yearning? For that Messiah. You're yearning for the wrong Messiah. And he said to me, do you see these, son of man, yet you will still see greater abominations than this. Okay, what can get worse than this? Verse 16. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Behold the entrance to the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar. The altar sits out front, the porch that goes into the sanctuary is behind you or in front of you, whichever way you're facing. You're at that point between the two. You are in the court of Israel at the most intimate place you can be. This is the place where the priest comes out and pronounces the priestly blessing. This is a very important place in the temple. And he says, that's what he's looking for. And he says of that, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple, backs to the sanctuary, and their faces toward the east, toward the altar part, looking east, away from the Holy of Holies, they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. Sun worship. They're doing sun worship in the temple of God at one of the most intimate places that the average believer could go to. Priests were the only ones who went into the actual sanctuary, but that's the last point in which that a non-priest could go in the temple. That is as close as you can get in the temple that there are. Here's 25 men. This is more than a minion. This is more than 10 who are laying face down toward the east, looking to the sun. Part of the Babylonian religion is based on astronomical things, sun, moon, stars, Constellations and so forth. And the head of it is the sun. They're participating in some of the oldest idolatry known to man, the worship of the sun. Uh, Baal comes out of this, the Babylonian religion comes out of this, Mithra comes out of this. Th- this one bright object in the sky that they can see, they've elevated and worshiped as God. That's a pretty strong abomination, I would think. Right in the temple right at the most intimate place in the temple that you could go and you're worshiping a false god from that position as you can imagine god refers to these as abominations and you would expect this would evoke an angry response from god at least a righteous indignation for what's happening verse 18 therefore i indeed shall deal in wrath my eye shall have no pity, nor shall I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. You know, God is pronouncing upon them judgment for sure. Now, as I said to you before, there's a historical element to this. There's a past element that is going to lead to the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. But there's also a future prophetic thing where that's what we have is called the abomination of desolation we have this final abomination that comes on the Temple Mount involving the anti-Messiah, a shutting down of the altar, denying God his proper place there in Jerusalem. And it says this is the reason why, this is the sign, the Messiah says, the great tribulation will start. This is when it starts. And that's part of the reason why we watch very closely In a modern Israel, any attempt on the part of Israel to get control of the Temple Mount, rebuild the altar, and so forth, because we know that's the prerequisites to the abomination of desolation prophecy, when the altar is shut down and the image is set up, the idol of jealousy that will be set on the wing of abomination. Once you kind of understand what is really irritating God, it explains how does God feel about the abomination of desolation that's coming in the future. So let's go a little bit further and see what God's wrath is all about. Chapter 9. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapons in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case on his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. The bronze altar is the main fire altar in the court of Israel. It sits in the middle of the court of Israel. They're standing by that altar, and they're going to be commissioned from that point by God to go do something. What is it they're going to go do? Verse 3, Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which he had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins had the writing case. And he said, the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all these abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike, and do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were there before the temple, And he said to them, Defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. Then it came about, as they were striking, and I alone was left, that I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, O Lord God, art thou destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out thy wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to him, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversions. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, I will have no pity, nor will I spare them, but I shall bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in the linen, at whose loins was the writing case, reported and said, I have done just as thou hast commanded me. Now, there's a lot of questions that immediately emerge over what we we just read. One of them is god is demonstrating he's going to judge his own people. I don't know if you've ever reminded you of this verse but Peter specifically said speaking of the end times the judgment will come first on the household of faith. And I believe that one of the judgments that's going to come on the household of faith has to do with that altar. We're going to have an altar set up in the future in Jerusalem, and when it gets set up and they start dedicating it and then doing the daily sacrifice, I think there's a lot of people, believers in Israel as well as around the world, who are going to speak against it. They're going to think that that's, in fact, I've actually heard them say it, that that is an abomination. From the Christian perspective, they'll say it as that's an abomination, that's an affront to the sacrifice of Yeshua. Sac- Yeshua the Messiah, was the last sacrifice, and holding another sacrifice is is countering his sacrifice. Of course, I would remind everybody that after Yeshua was crucified, the temple continued to remain until 70 AD, and the apostles used to go to the temple and worship the Lord. So that doesn't make sense, that whole concept. Furthermore, Yeshua's sacrifice is different from all the other sacrifices that come. His is the sacrifice that comes from God. Everybody else's is a, that come from men. Yeshua's sacrifice is the one that passes you from death to life. The sacrifice of the men don't do that. They're trying to teach you to make uh, to repent and make restitution for your wrongs, your mistakes, to be responsible for your behavior, you know, before the Lord and understand God has a substitutionary system. The altar is very profound in teaching us that about the things of God. I want to remind you that Yeshua in Matthew 23, made a rather interesting comment about religious men of his day, and he said the following. He said, only a fool would say that the gift is more important than the altar. And he said, that was foolishness, that it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. If you don't have that altar there doing what it's supposed to be doing, and you bring a lamb, it's not a burnt offering to the Lord. It's just a lamb. And when it gets killed, it's just a lamb that God killed. It's not a gift of the Lord. We have a lot of Christians today who believe that the Lamb of God sacrifice is eminently that gift that God gave to us is way more important than the altar. If there wasn't an altar operating at the time Yeshua came and gave his life, then he wouldn't qualify as the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God has to be elevated above the altar. And when Yeshua was lifted up on the cross, we believe he was on the Mount of Olives, and the line of sight from the Holy of Holies goes right over the top of the altar to where he was crucified. That altar that was in the temple in Jerusalem sanctified the blood of the new covenant. That altar is the one that's responsible for determining that he's the Lamb of God's sacrifice. Otherwise, without it, Well, Yeshua was just falsely accused and an innocent man was executed. But you can't go around saying he's the Lamb of God, that he's the sacrifice, because it has to fit within the altar system according to God's rules of how a substitution is presented to him. So the core issue of disputing God has to do with the altar. So when the altar goes up, which represents God's ownership of the earth and everything in it, When you shut it down or you stop it, you're denying God is the God of the whole world. You're denying his ownership of the whole world. You're denying his path and his plan on the work of redemption. You're denying all of it. And I understand that we have a lot of brethren, Christian brethren, who've not been instructed in the ways of Moses. They have not been instructed in the temple service. They don't know what the altar means. They don't know how it operates. They don't know what the priesthood does. They just think all that is done away with and that Jesus is everything. And they don't understand that our faith in Yeshua's Lamb of God is based on that whole temple system God established with Moses and the priests. And I would remind everybody that Jeremiah 33, talking to the future of the kingdom, it says that the Levitical priest will serve continually forever before the Lord. There's going to be an altar in the millennial kingdom, and it's going to be before the Lord, and the Levitical priests are going to be serving at it. That's what Jeremiah 33 says. And a lot of, as I said, the teaching that has been given to the Christian world, the believing world, is none of it. They have no concept of this. My great fear is that when these events begin to take place, the altar goes up, we're going to have all these people joining in, the opposition to it, We know the Antichrist is going to be opposed to it. And they're going to join with the Antichrist to do an abomination and shut down the altar. And God is going to use this as saying, that's it, enough already. So in the Great Tribulation, who gets judged first? What judgment happens first? Well, I can tell you this. We believe the sealing of the 144,000 comes early in the Great Tribulation that Gabriel will go out with the inkhorn, that's who the angel is. And he's going to seal 144,000. And as soon as he's established that in the faith of the remnant, there's going to be a bunch of other angels that are going to go out and judge believers, the whole house of Israel. By the way, I get shocked for you Christians, you're part of the house of Israel. And he's going to judge them because those people are not going to be a part of the tribulation saints. If they can't get it straight as to what is God's ownership symbol, they have no concept of what is getting ready to happen and what God's going to be doing to establish his kingdom. It clearly says in the book of Revelation that the people that are in the great tribulation, 144,000 and the tribulation saints, they have the testimony of Yeshua and they keep his commandments. It's emphatically stated that it's not the testimony of your average Christian. Your average Christian says, I believe in Yeshua, but no, I don't keep those commandments. That is at great odds with what is said in the the book of Revelation. And oh, by the way, it would explain what is the reason and what will happen when God judges his own house as the first judgment in the great tribulation. It's Ezekiel here that tells us about that judgment. We just have Peter alluding to judgment comes first on the household of faith. And I think this is going to be, to a certain extent, traumatizing to all of us. I think we, like Ezekiel, are going to be looking around and going, Oh, God, is it your plan to destroy everybody? Before you destroy the world, you're going to kill all of us. And it's going to be shocking. But here's what I think we're going to come away with. One, we're going to now understand that God is taking this world very seriously. And he's going to clean this mess up. And if he's cleaned his house that severely, I can assure you, who's going to clean the world just as severe. And it goes all the way to the point where Zephaniah talks about that God will even take a lamp and go look for them in the holes of the earth to get them. So the efforts on survivalists to hide from what's coming won't work. This is a very severe judgment and very severe to hear these words. These are the verses that talk about the ceiling of the 144,000. That's what takes us back to Revelation chapter 7 and how all those pieces come together. We're going to discover from this point on there's going to be additional references. Ezekiel, you're going to find, not only is talking about the historical situation where he's in, he'll also be alluding to things the book of Revelation talks about that deal with the last generation. This is not the only place. We're going to see a whole bunch of other prophecies. And some visions about future things for us. So, in this episode, I want to open the door for you to see Ezekiel has a lot to say about you and me besides what he had to say about Babylon in his day. That's our lesson for this Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom to all of you.